welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, today is a good day. Welcome here again. Oh, excited for what God has for us today. In the verse Joan just read for us in uh, Matthew 11, Jesus uses an illustration there uh, which has a much larger meaning than many of us Christians understand. We, we see this story laid out and, uh, and, and it, it's, there's way more to it. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 specifically, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So the, the yoke... Uh, that's the illustration Jesus is using, this, this yoke. And a yoke is often a kind of a, a plank of wood or some kind of a shaped piece of wood where you would maybe hang a couple of uh, buckets off of. If you're, if you're trying to get water from one place to another, you'd have a yoke that would help you carry that. Yokes were also used uh, to yoke oxen to a wagon or something like that. But it was this idea of, of, of having something that would help us carry something else. And Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. This is illustration that he's using. Take this thing that I'm going to give you that will help you carry something else. And Jesus is likely not talking about helping us do our farm chores. What Jesus is referring to here, so this is where the illustration goes much deeper. He's not just talking about a yoke that's used for uh, gathering water or that type of a thing. He's using a common term that was used with the Pharisees when they would talk to their disciples. He would say, the Pharisees would say, carry my yoke. This is a common thing. The Jewish people would have all known exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, carry my yoke. Back in Jesus' day, the best way to learn about anything was not to read about stuff in a book or to Google it like we do nowadays. The best way to learn stuff was to find someone who knew it really well, find an expert and follow them around. It was called discipleship. And the Pharisees were the best of the best. They, they were the best of the best when it came to knowing God. Not other stuff, of course, but when it came to knowing God, the Pharisees were the best of the best about knowing God. And people who wanted to know about God would, were drawn to the Pharisees. They were drawn to these teachers, these rabbis, these teachers of the law, to be able to find out who God is what did God look like? What did He do? What did He expect of us? The disciples would follow the Pharisees around and they'd listen to them teach. They'd even watch them eat, see how they lived, see how they worshipped, see how they slept, how, see how they treated their families. They would do all the things, watch them day in, day out, 24-7, 365. The disciples would follow their rabbis, rabbi means teacher, and learn everything everything the rabbi knew about God. And all this teaching, all this knowledge, all this expert wisdom, all this understanding, all this behavior, the sum total of all the Pharisees knew about God was, was called the Pharisee's yoke. They'd call it my yoke. The Pharisee would say, everything that I know about God, everything that I do, everything that I understand, all of my wisdom, it's my yoke. And if you want to learn about God, you will take my yoke upon you. The Pharisees would often say, come, learn my yoke. 
Over the last several months, we've been going through a series called Practicing the Way, where we've looked at the practices of Jesus that help us to know him more. The things that Jesus did, he's our rabbi, he's our teacher. We've been looking to Jesus and seeing how he lived his life, how he knew God so that we can know him better and know God better. We are learning the yoke of Jesus. In October, we looked at this practice of Sabbath, how Jesus practiced Sabbath, how he did Sabbath. In November, we looked at the practice of prayer. Just this last month in January, we looked at the practice of fasting. We were trying to get to know the yoke of Jesus. There are other practices that we look at uh, that we're going to look at in the future. We're going to look at generosity. We're going to look at solitude. We're going to look at community. There's all kinds of yokes that we're going to spend time understanding and learning. And it's our desire through these yokes, these practices, that we will draw nearer to Jesus, know more about God, and feel in connection and community with Him. This month in February, what we've been doing is we've taken some of those practices and we've looked. We, many of you came back from small groups or came back from sermons and, and you had questions about some of these things and you wanted to go deeper with prayer and you wanted to go deeper with fasting. And so as we looked at those things, we, we thought we need to take this one step further. And so that's what February has been all about. It's been one step further. And today we are going one step further with the way of Jesus. Now, it's not a specific question that you had about fasting or about prayer or about any of these things. It's a thought that we had about all of this stuff. Last week, Pastor Amy spent some time talking about the Trinity. Went one step farther, specifically with the Trinity, but specifically with the Father, our Heavenly Father. And Pastor Amy quoted a a passage of Scripture that's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 1. It's Hebrews 1-3. And I love this passage because there's so much more to it. There's so much meat in it. And this passage just simply says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. All through our history, for thousands of years, people have been trying to figure out who is God. What does he look like? What does he do? How does he behave? Here in this passage, it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And yet people have been looking everywhere else to find out who God is like. Albert Einstein even famously said, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are just details. Back in Jesus' time, the the people kept asking Jesus. As they encountered Jesus, they saw the things that he did, and they watched him. They kept asking Jesus, Jesus, would you reveal to us who God is? Show us who God is. Even his disciples were a little confused about who God was because they are asking Jesus constantly to reveal the the Father to them. In, In a famous passage in John chapter 14, Philip, one of the disciples, asked Jesus, Would you reveal to us, finally, Jesus, would you reveal to us the face of the Father? Would you reveal to us the Father? And Jesus just looks at Philip and says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What a crazy thing to say. Jesus, show us the Father. You've seen the Father. There's a profound statement Jesus made. The Jewish people were constantly asking the rabbis to reveal to them who God is, what he's like, what he does, what does he require of us. 
Jesus here says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The rabbis, in answer to these questions, would just teach the people about their yoke. You want to know who God is? Learn my yoke. Learn my list of rules. Learn my list of right and wrong behaviors. Do what I do so that you will know who God is. But here's the thing. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had been through trauma and disappointment and frustration, and they were currently under captivity under the Roman Empire. And the yoke of the rabbis was a yoke that was full of trauma response. I want to explain what trauma response is here. See, our, our world is steeped in trauma response. You can hear it on every news program, every song, every movie, every street corner and boardroom. It has become commonplace in my family as we watch TV shows, as we watch hockey games. We're always going, man, that person needs soul care. Like we're just, we, we recognize trauma everywhere as people are living their lives. And here's what happens. It's not just people that have gone through a difficult time of trauma. It's not, it's not, that's not the big deal. The, the, the problem is not that trauma happens, because we know trauma happens all the time. The problem is that people go through trauma and they don't deal with it. It's, it's not trauma that causes all the world's problems. It's undealt with trauma. What happens when trauma occurs in our life, whether it's big or small, in fact, actually the small things traumatize us the most, because we, we look at the small things that happen and we go, it's, not, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's fine. And we just let it slide. But trauma happens in our world, and instead of taking time to process our emotions, instead of taking time to grieve or face reality or forgive or let go, instead of doing those things, we just we pretend like it's not a big deal, and we bury it down deep, and we pretend like everything is fine. It's the best thing in the world, right? You, people come and see you. They see that your eyes are red, and they see that you've had a difficult night sleeping, and they see you've had a tough day or you've had a rough week, and they say, how are you doing, and what do you say? I'm fine. I'm fine. We bury this stuff down deep, pretending that everything is fine. And that's where trauma begins to fester and grow, and it begins to take over all of our life. Until trauma becomes performance, control, people-pleasing, anger, brokenness, rule-following, depression, addiction, and all kinds of unhealthy behavior. And it becomes overwhelming. And people look at us and they go, why are you so angry? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so addicted? And we, 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 begin, to be, we begin to be angry at other people who are not dealing with their stuff. Why don't you just deal with your anger? But anger is not actually the problem. Why don't you deal with your addiction? But addiction is not really the problem. Why don't you deal with, deal with, deal with, but it's actually, this is all surface stuff. It's stuff that's festered out of this trauma that's way down here that we didn't deal with years and years and years ago. Sometimes, 20, 30, 40 years in our past, where this little seed of trauma sat and just festered and grew. And our whole lives become guided and led by trauma, undealt with trauma. And we see this in people, we see this in families, we see this in nations. We see this in nations, like in, in you, look at, you look at, I mean, North America has its own 
problems. It's easier sometimes to see other people's problems rather than our own. But my family and I, when we were in Cambodia, and if you know anything about the story of Cambodia, the atrocities that happened in Cambodia, and you go there and you see trauma everywhere, but nobody, nobody sees it because it's just, it's just how we live. It's just, it's just our life. It's just what's normal. But there's trauma everywhere. And you, you go to England and you see trauma everywhere because of, I mean, can you imagine, as you think about the world wars and some of the bombings that happened there, and you, you think of some of the stuff that happened there, and you go, oh my goodness, and then you see stiff upper lip, and you see uh, uh, sometimes unemotional people, and you go, oh my goodness. Like, and, then you, and then you go to places like in Israel where they say never again. They say never again will this ever, never again will the Holocaust ever happen to us. And you look at what's happening right now today, and you go, Oh my goodness. The trauma is just leading the way. And this is true everywhere. It's true everywhere. And if, and if you were to stop and, and, and look at what is Canada's trauma? What is, oh, Canada's trauma. Some of the grossest, ter- most terrible stuff that we just don't talk about or deal with because we feel like this is just normal. So you see it in people and families and, and nations. And the world is dealing with a trauma that started way back at the very beginning of all time when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and and walk into sin. And now we just think sin is normal. It's just normal. It's normal to hate our neighbors. It's normal to to do the things that we do because this is just normal. Selfishness, it's normal. All this stuff is just normal. But it's trauma. It's trauma that becomes generational. This is undealt with trauma. And this is what's happening in Jesus' day with the people that Jesus is speaking to. It's happening with the Pharisees. As they they understand God, they say, we've created this yoke to understand God, and it comes out of this trauma that we have experienced as a Jewish people and now currently are experiencing as a Jewish people. And the Pharisees are telling all the disciples and all the people, follow me and learn from me as I know God in this undealt with trauma way. Deep into undealt with trauma, which resulted in, for the Pharisees, it, it manifested as control and performance and many other things. And so the religion of the Pharisees, the yoke of the Pharisees, was a people who were focused on striving. They were focused on striving instead of love and connection. The yoke of the rabbis was a yoke that tried to prove to God that they were worthy, that they were good enough, that they deserved to be loved. They felt unloved through the traumatic events that they'd experienced. And so they were trying to prove to God that they were lovely. It was a striving, controlling, manipulating yoke that the Pharisees were walking under and were getting other people to walk under. And so much of what they did was a response to this this feeling of feeling uh, oppressed. And so they mirrored that with God. And they said, well, God is an oppressive God. God is an angry God. God is unloving. We We have to prove our worth to God. If we follow the commandments and we follow the rules and the regulations and we make sure we do this and that and the other thing and live perfect lives, then maybe, maybe God will love us. Maybe he will save us. 
Maybe he will be for us if we act in just the right way. Now, before we judge the rabbis too harshly, how many of us pursue God in this exact same way? How many of us go around life thinking, if I can just do enough, if I can serve and give, and if I go to church enough, and if I love my neighbor enough, and if I do all the right things, will God finally love me? Last week, Pastor Amy said something that needs to be chewed on for a while. She said that our relationship with our Heavenly Father sometimes looks like us trying to live life earning points from someone who isn't even keeping score. I'll just pause for a moment. If you heard it last week, I hope it lands again for you. If this is the first time, just listen to it again. Our relationship sometimes, our relationship with our Heavenly Father sometimes looks like it, like us trying to live life earning points from someone who isn't even keeping score. And that's what the rabbi's yoke looked like. The enemy had come into the Jewish religious system to create a space where the, where the people were living like slaves to the God who wanted to treat them like sons and daughters. And this is what Jesus walks into. Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father, walks into this mess. He enters a world where the yoke of the rabbis was heavy and exhausting and led to death. And he came to bring something different. So here we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. And here's the context of this chapter. In the beginning of chapter 11, John the baptizer, you guys know this guy. He was the guy that was out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair. He was a weird prophetic type of a guy out there just yelling to anyone who would listen, hey, the Messiah is coming. And as he's out there in the desert doing this, he, he's arrested at some point because he's saying things that are crazy and he's speaking against people and he gets arrested and thrown into jail. And at the beginning of John, Matthew chapter 11, John the baptizer is, is, is in jail and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus the question, are you really the Messiah? Now John knew. This was John's whole deal. His whole life had led up to this moment in the desert where he's calling out, the Messiah is coming, Jesus comes down, John baptizes him. It's an amazing thing. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But here he's in jail. He says, go and find out for me. Is he really the Messiah? Are you, is he the one who will set people free, the one who will break this religious bondage, the one who will reveal to the world the true character of the Father, the one who will heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, open the eyes of the blind? Well, is he the one that's going to raise the dead and give good news to the poor? Is he the one that's going to set the captives free? I'm sure John, at some point in his little diatribe here, as he's in his jail cell asking, go ask the Messiah, is he the one that's going to set the captives free? I'm, I'm in jail, Jesus, if you didn't know. So John asks, are you really him? Because it's getting heavy in here. It's getting exhausting under this yoke. And it's leading us to death. In answer to John's question, are you really him? Jesus says to John's disciples the exact answer. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's happening, John. He leaves out the part about captives being set free. 
But it's happening, John. It's happening. The thing that you know the Messiah is all about, it's happening. And we don't know how John responds. We don't know when John gets this answer, what he says or what he does. But I imagine John being overjoyed. I imagine him, even though he's in the jail, jail cell there, him going, yes, it's happening. Yes. Jesus goes on in this chapter to describe the response that other people had about his coming. First-hand experience of, of what, what they thought about this Jesus. You know, if John had seen blind eyes open, the dead raised, the good news preached to the poor, John would have been ecstatic, doing cartwheels all over the place, I'm sure. How would other people receive this news? Well, Jesus tells us that when the religious elite saw what Jesus was doing, when they saw it with their own eyes, when they saw blind eyes opened, they saw deaf ears opened, the leprosy gone, dead raised, when they saw this happening, here's what their response was. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's their response to the good news. Going on in Matthew 11, Jesus then begins to describe whole cities, whole cities who were first-hand witnesses of his miracles. Whole cities that are seeing amazing things happen. Not just like a person in a street corner or down a back alley who gets healed, but whole cities who are coming out by the droves that are seeing Jesus do miraculous works. Jesus describes whole cities who see his miracles and still don't believe. And still don't believe. Why? Why do people not believe in Jesus though they were faced with all the evidence of lives changed of things happening. Because through the yoke of the Pharisees, they were blinded to the truth of who God really was. And the expectation they had of Jesus was that he would just come and tell them the rules. He would just come and tell them the rules of what to do. They had come to believe that God was possibly inept or impotent, uninvolved, or distant, or disgusted, or unloving, or angry. And the yoke of the Pharisees was designed to prove to this false God that the people had worth and value. It was the whole plan. The yoke of the Pharisees was to prove to this unloving God that the people were worthy of love. The yoke of the Pharisees forced the people to try and pray enough, fast enough, tithe enough, Sabbath enough, perform enough, so that God would have mercy on them and not wipe them out. They could not conceive of a God who was present and gracious and connected, who loved them so much that he would send his own son, Jesus, into the world to rescue them. Not because of what they did, but because God said they had value and worth. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, we come to the end of Matthew chapter 11. As, after Jesus has said, John has asked his question. Jesus has said, look, here, here is who I am. The, the religious leaders have responded. He's just a drunken and a, glut, glut, a, drunken and a glut, glutton, glutton and a drunkard. There we go. This wasn't working out. Glutton and a drunkard. 
as after cities had, had despised Jesus, though they had seen all this, at the end of all this, here's what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, all this stuff, my amazing relationship with you, Father, and who you are and all this, you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. See, the, the wise and learned, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, the Pharisees, all the people who should have known who the Father was, they were wrong. They didn't know. They didn't know. And the children Jesus is speaking here are likely not children. Though there were children that show up lots of time in Jesus' stories, but these are likely not children. Jesus is, is likely using this terminology to describe all the unwise, all the regular people. So, of course, you've got the adults who are the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders and all these people. Then you've got all the children. That's, that's all the rest of us. All the, all the children, the unwise, the unschooled, the unlearned, the tax collectors, the sinners, the poor, the normal everyday people. These are the people that God has revealed his character to. The Father has revealed himself to these children. And how has the Father done this? Well, we already know the answer to this, but in this passage, Jesus gives us the answer again. We know that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. That's how the Father has revealed himself, is through Jesus. So Jesus says it again, Matthew chapter eleven twenty-seven. 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Father has revealed himself to the children, to the unlearned, unwise, tax collectors and sinners, through the Son. Jesus, the exact representation of the Father. And while all the wise and learned missed Jesus, the poor, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, they saw him. So the yoke of the Pharisees had been leading the people towards a false god. The, the yoke forced the people to serve and give and fast so they could get God's approval. The yoke was heavy and exhausting and led to death. But here comes Jesus revealing to the world the true Father and offering, offering to the world the true yoke, the true way to know God. So here comes the climax of Jesus' message. At the end of all of this, here is the climax of the story. Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Do you hear that? Like he's just said, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except for the Father. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and you should know the Father is too, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You don't need to prove your worth because your Father in heaven has already proved your worth. You don't have to strive to be loved because your Father in heaven already loves you. 
And this message is for those who have been performing and striving and working so hard to earn the love of God. Jesus just says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I want to draw a picture for you, because I think a picture is very helpful in understanding things sometimes. Many people uh, today feel like they have to, to work hard to earn God's love. This is not just a thing of Jesus' time. We do this today. We do this all the time. We try to perform and control and people please and do all the things that we're trying to do to make somebody love us, somebody love us, especially God. If I can just do enough, maybe God will love me. As we think about this kind of living, we can think of our life like a building with a foundation with pillar supports and a roof. And in order to be loved, we pray, and we worship, and we tithe, and we serve, and we fast, and on and on and on. We have this, this endless list of things that we do so that God will love us. And all these things are pillars that we set up on this false foundation of striving to be loved, performing to prove our worth. And we build this house that we think will result in God's love, but all it does is build up this false kingdom that relies on my efforts, my strength, my work, my behavior, and we build our kingdom, my kingdom. I build my kingdom, and I create God in my own image. And then I tell other people, you should come serve this God who I've made in my image. This God who, who will love you if you come to my church. This God who will love you if you come and be on my worship team. He'll love you if you give your money to the church. He'll love you if you serve the world. He'll love you if, if, if. We, we create a God who loves people unconditionally. We create a God who loves people conditionally. We build our kingdom. And we try to welcome people to it, and we wonder why nobody's running to their, our kingdom to serve a God who doesn't love them. See, we, we settle today for a God, a false God, who's sanitized, inept, impotent, angry, a God who's devoid of love, presence, or power. We settle for Jesus' light, diet, Holy Spirit, an absentee Heavenly Father. But that's not God. It's not God. He says, God is personal. He's the one that looked out into the world and he saw the death and the destruction and he said, I'm going to love this world so much that I'm willing to sacrifice myself for this world. For God so loved the world that he sent his own son. He's active, relational, intimate, loving, caring, powerful. He's for you. He's for you. He's not against you. He's for you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary of this false God, of trying to work so hard to prove your value. Come to me, you who are heavy laden with serving, fasting, praying just to get God's approval. Come to me to know the God who is not reluctant to shower you with his love. This is the yoke of Jesus. If you come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior, you will become aware of how much God already loves you. 
Before you come to Jesus, he loves you. So this is not if you come to Jesus, he will love you. This is you will finally realize how much he loves you. Because before you come to Jesus, he loves you. But when you come to Jesus, all of a sudden you will realize, I've been loved all along. I've been loved all along. You will begin to realize that you've been made in the image of God. You're not some worm struggling around in the dirt. Every single person in this world has been made in the image of God. And we need to sing that. We need to say that. We need to show everybody that. As people worry, as they're like, well, I think I'm just broken. Well, yeah, okay. And I think I'm just lost. Well, yeah, okay. Well, I think I'm just dirt and unworthy of love. Hold on. Because you've been made in the image of God. And that's not been taken away from you. Yes, it's been marred by the grossness. Yes, it's been marred by the sin. But you are still made in the image of God. You've been made in the image of God. You have value because God says you have value. Even your brokenness is not too much for God. Because your brokenness can be redeemed. You're filled with when you come to Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, God doesn't put his presence in garbage cans. He fills his presence into carefully crafted treasures. And that's you. You've been carefully crafted to carry the presence of God. You've been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. You've been given a place of, of authority and status. You're welcomed into the throne room, not as a beggar, but as a child of the king. You're called, set apart. You are his priesthood, his beloved, his bride, his treasured possession. And none of this, none of this is because of how much you've loved him. None of this is because of how hard you've worked. None of this is something that you've earned by your sacrifice or by your love or by your work. All of this is the gift of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't work hard enough for it. There's no need to strive. It is given freely to you. It's given freely to you because of the work of Jesus Christ. We're told in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus Christ is a love letter to every single person in this world, whether they acknowledge it or not. And while they were still seeped in their brokenness, while we were still steeped in our brokenness, God showed his love for us by having Christ die for us. And in 1 John 4, 19, it says that we love because he first loved us. God first loved us. He first loved us. So what if we build a different house? A house where we, where we began with a foundation that God first loved us. We are loved already. What if the foundation of our house is just that? We are loved already. We didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to strive for it. We didn't have to work for it. We are loved already. We are loved. We are accepted. We are valued. We have worth. What if the love of God was the foundation of our house? And then we might do some of the very same things that, that, that we did in the old house. We might have some of the same exact behaviors as what we did in the old house, but the motivation would be drastically different. 
Instead of striving to be loved, we would know that we are loved already. And then, out of that love, we would pray, worship, tithe, serve, fast, and on and on. Not so that we could be loved, but because we are already loved. This this is the kind of stuff that flows out of a heart that knows it's fully loved. Instead of creating God in our own image, we would recognize how God has been revealed in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, loving, caring, close, and relational. We would recognize God's unconditional love, and instead of our kingdom, we would be building God's kingdom. And then when we told people, do you want to know God? He loves you already. Come and get to know this God who has poured himself out for you. Doesn't this look like a much better option? A much better option than the other house. As we've been teaching on the yokes of Sabbath, prayer, and fasting, one of our concerns has been that people will begin to think that, oh, I'm learning the how-tos of being loved by God. I'm learning that if I do these things, God will love me more. We've been concerned about that. Every time we begin to talk about discipleship, the concern is we need to make sure that we don't fall back into the old religiosity of striving to earn God's love. We must not do that. And so this is the one step further piece of this. We're going to be speaking about the yokes, the disciplines. We're going to be talking about these things. But they have to come out of a space of our full understanding of who we are in Christ, that we are already loved. This is the yoke, the way of Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So as we we hear a, a message like this, there's a possibility that stuff's stirred up. That we're going, maybe there's some stuff in my life that's undealt with, that needs to be dealt with. Maybe I've been striving. Maybe I've been working really hard to gain God's love. And so if that's true of you, what I would encourage you to do is just take some time to process. Find somebody next to you or, or contact your small group or contact your, your pastor or whatever. Um, we'd love to walk with you through some of the stuff. We'll, we'll be up here a few, so we'll be up here for prayer after the service if you'd like to come for prayer. Uh, but, but don't leave from here without a plan for what you're going to do. Don't just bury this down and leave and just keep on living your life of striving. And press into the fact that you are loved by God right now. Just pray this blessing over you and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful <clears throat> for your love. You love us. You love us. And it's not arrogant or prideful on our part to say that. We're just just being, uh, stating the truth. That you so love every single one of us. Every single one of your creation. Created in your image. Set apart. Welcomed into your family. 
through Jesus Christ. And today I just ask, Lord, that you would just bless your people as you love to bless your people. Would you bless your people with a fresh revelation of your presence today? That your people would know that they are loved. I bless you, church, to know that you are loved by your heavenly Father. Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father, walks side by side with you. You are a co-heir with Christ, seated with Christ in heavenly places, called to come boldly into the throne room of God because you are his child, his treasured possession. And now, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill your people afresh even right now that we be able to, to walk in the truth of our worthiness, our love, that we are loved, we are worthy, we are valued, not because of what we've done, but because of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us. I bless you, church, to know who you are in Christ and walk that out this week. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise your holy name. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.